0: Romans chapter 5. Since 9-11, we've had a new era of heroes. Obviously, there were many heroes in the Vietnam War. We didn't get to know about them so much because of the, the, the conflict and the convolution going on in the country, even while that war was going on outside the country. Thankfully, we've come to... Come to realize and respect the sacrifice that, people's, that people make. 9 11 started with heroes like Todd Beamer, who kept an airplane from being flown into our capital. I heard of two pilots, this, their story was reported this week, a story that I don't think was fully, was fully uh, publicized in the wake of 9 11. They knew there were airplanes flying that perhaps were going to be used as those were used in New York City and on the Pentagon. And so they scrambled two fighter jets with no weapons because they didn't have weapons, and it would have taken an hour to arm them. And so they scrambled these two jets, one piloted by a man and one piloted by the first female uh, fighter jet pilot ever. And they scrambled them and said, this is your target. And they both flew toward that airplane, knowing that all things being equal, they would give their lives for us. The Lord had other plans for them that day and for that airplane. That's a hero, somebody who lays down their life for someone else, someone who expects to lay down their life for someone else. This fellow is the, the most recent Medal of Honor winner, or the most recent event. His name is Leroy Petrie. He was a sergeant. He is a sergeant. And he was in a firefight in Afghanistan, and their unit was pinned down, and they were taking cover, and he was taking cover after he'd been shot in both legs and uh, his little group of, of soldiers were, were, were taking cover, waiting for help, trying to live through the battle, and a live grenade came into where they could see it, thrown by the enemy. And he went after it with two injured legs and grabbed the grenade to throw it away, and in the process lost his arm. That's a hero. That is self-sacrifice, all of the Americans who survived that battle credited him with saving their lives. I can, hardly, I can hardly read those kind of things without tearing up, as you can see. We previewed the slides that Leanna put together with that song that the choir sang, and I said, I've got to watch them ahead of time because I will not be able to watch them while we sing. That just won't work for me. It, it touches me deeply. That kind of love is summarized by Jesus, When he said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. There is no greater love than that known to mankind. Among those in the military and in law enforcement that I'm familiar with as a chaplain for the sheriff's office, there is a great sense of responsibility for one another. When you're fighting for your life or when you could be fighting for your life, you realize that those who have your back are highly valued and to be highly protected. And that's why Sergeant Petrie's sacrifice is so significant. Everyone in his group saw the grenade, but only one guy went after it. Now, I'm not faulting them because I'm not sure if I'd go after it. But we know for certain that he loved them more than himself. That's why the love of Christ is so spectacular. Sergeant Petri risked his life for his friends, which is commendable. But look at who Jesus gave his life for according to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely... For a righteous man, one will die. Perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. That's Sergeant Petrie. He dared to die for good men. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I understand that God loves us and that was the motive of what he did, but he did not send his son to die for his son's friends other scripture calls those of us people who have not yet believed in Christ he calls them the enemies of God Christ died for us while we were still in our sin that makes the death of Christ the greatest act of love ever because it is completely undeserved on the part of us sinners i would assume that to one degree or another all the people that sergeant petrie served with would have sacrificed themselves to him for him and perhaps had uh you know helped him in many ways over time there is a sense in which they deserved his sacrifice There is no sense in which we deserved the sacrifice of Christ. Turn back a page in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? And the Apostle Paul is comparing Jewish folks who knew God's Old Testament law with Gentile folks who didn't know anything of God's Old Testament law. And he's comparing them as they stand before God before they are believers in Christ. He said, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues They practice deceit, the poison of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how God sees us before we believe in Christ. He says there's nobody who's out looking for God. Now, I understand some people feel like they've been seeking for God when they find Him. What we understand elsewhere in the Scripture is that's the result of God reaching down and pulling. How many sins does it take to become that separated from God, that Romans 3 kind of separated from God? Just one. Just one. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The literal translation of that phrase, you shall surely die, is dying you shall die. God said, Adam and Eve, here you are. You are without sin. You're in a place that is without sin. This is, uh, you know, humanly speaking, a perfect environment. Now there's one commandment, one commandment, one prohibition. And that is don't eat from this tree. And they broke that prohibition. And God said, you are sinners and you deserve to die And you will die. And the dying you shall die makes reference to the two facts of death. One physical, the other spiritual. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we all will die physically. We don't have to die spiritually if we come to faith in Christ. But if we don't die, if we don't believe in Christ, we will die twice. It's so easy for us to see ourselves as pretty good. We look at ourselves, we look at others and think, oh, you know, we're we're, we're pretty this way, we're pretty that way. And yet Adam and Eve were without sin. And one sin created the grand canyon between them and God. That's why the death of Christ for sinners is the greatest act of love ever because it's completely undeserved on our part. The second thing we need to understand this morning is this. The death of Christ is the greatest act of love ever because it saves us from the worst possible death. Look again with me at Romans 5, please, our original text, starting in verse 9. We read down through verse 8, now in verse 9. Much more than having been justified or made righteous by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through christ for if when we were enemies we were reconciled brought back together to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life god says that when we are when a person is an unbeliever their destiny, their the judgment that is upon them is the wrath of God. When we believe in Christ, we turn in the opposite direction, and now there is no wrath of God waiting for us. We have been delivered from the wrath of God. That is why at the moment that we breathe our last here, we breathe our next breath in heaven with no intervention of judgment or, or any other such thing. We just read about the beginning of wrath in Genesis chapter 2. If you sin, dying you shall die. Other scripture fills this out, helping us to understand that physical death came because of sin, and after that physical death, there is the potential. There is the potential for spiritual death in a place called hell. Now, I want to ask the question today, how bad is hell? Okay? And I want to answer it from the scripture. Here's one answer. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than to have, having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than to have two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you know what it means when God says something more than once right in a row? Is God forgetful? No. God says, get this, get this, get this, get this. He said, if if your hand is going to make you sin so much that you... You do not come to faith in Christ and you do not believe in God in a saving way. If your hand is going to do that, it would be better for you to cut it off because you do not want to go to hell that much. I can't imagine grabbing a hold of a live grenade thinking I might live, I might die, part of my arm might get blown off. I can't imagine that decision. Wow. Wow. Jesus said, look at your hand. If there's some sin that you love so much, cut it off. He said, look at your feet. Do your feet take you to a place that you love to go to, but it's sinful? He said, cut them off. He said, look at your eye. Look in the mirror with your one eye at the other eye and say, does that make you sin? Pluck it out. Now, if you're here for the first time today, no, I'm not. We're not going to get a saw out after church. Jesus was using hyperbole to drive the point home. He said, it would be better for you to cut your hand off. I understand that even if you cut your hand off to to stop sin, you could still go to hell. The point Jesus was making is, this is a terrible place. The worm doesn't die, which means death is ongoing. And the fire is not quenched, which means the fire keeps going. I don't know how something can burn and burn and burn and not be consumed. I don't know how a worm can eat and eat and eat and not consume what is there. But somehow hell is such a place that the worm doesn't die and the fire doesn't go out. And Jesus said it is so bad that you would be better off to lose some of your limbs than to go there. How bad is hell? Then Jesus will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is at the end of a passage of scripture when Jesus talks about a judgment in the future of people that go through some things in the future, and there's going to be a judgment between those that are righteous and those that were unrighteous. And he says, all of you on my left hand, you're going to hell. Here's the point I want you to get today. Why was hell created? It was created for the devil and his angels is created to be their eternal place of torment. God hates sin so much that he's going to send those who refuse to believe in Christ to the same place he sends the devil and his angels. Now, humanly speaking, we look at that and say, wow, that's really harsh. I'm not as bad as the devil. I don't know. I just know that God calls sin, sin, and he doesn't make a lot of differentiation between one to another. And we need to understand that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And we need to understand that the devil is not there now and doesn't want to be there ever. You remember this episode in the life of Christ? When he'd come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, So that nobody could pass by that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And these demons said, Don't send us to that place of torment. Let us go into these pigs. Hell is so bad that demons don't want to go there. See, our popular concept of hell is so messed up. We've got a picture of the devil in his red suit with his pitchfork standing there at the door going, Hey, dude, what's happening? Or maybe we have the far side picture. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) The truth is, there's nothing funny. Maybe you have the country western picture of hell. I've got friends in low places. And you think you're going to go to hell and have a party with all your friends. Well, you might go to hell with your friends, but it will not be a party because not even the devil wants to go there. How bad is hell? Hell is so bad that a man who was there didn't want his loved ones to join him. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The man who was there said, I don't want any more of my relatives to come here. And again, some people would say, well, I don't deserve hell. Colossians 3 begs to differ. Therefore, put to death your members, that the parts of your life which are on the earth, fornication, which is all manner of sexual sin, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, coveting, wanting stuff, living for stuff, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. I don't know if there's any sin in the world more common than sexual sin, or or, except maybe this one here, you know, the whole appeal of of advertising is, hey, this will make your life better, and hey, don't you want this, and so on. And God says, living by those sins makes us deserving of the wrath of God. Now let me just stop today before I turn to the believers and help you understand this. If you're here and you've never believed in Christ, what I want you to know more than anything else is you don't have to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. Scripture says God is not willing that any should perish. God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. It has not been my goal today to scare you into heaven. I don't believe that I can. But if you've looked at the scripture about hell and said, you know what? If there's any possibility that that's real, I don't want to go there. The solution is to believe in Christ because he will take away your sin and implant his life into you. And I urge you to believe in him now, even as I speak, to talk to God in silent prayer and say, Oh, God, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus as my Savior. Coming back to Romans 5, though, for those of us who have believed in Christ, I want to emphasize this verse again. Verse 9, Having now been made righteous by His blood, when Christ shed blood, our faith in that makes us righteous. Having been justified, we shall be saved from wrath. We don't have to do anything to avoid hell besides believe in Christ. We have been saved from the worst possible death. I've seen some pretty gruesome deaths. I, you know, I wouldn't even describe them for you today. I wouldn't even tell you what it was. I wouldn't even give you the littlest definition because I know some people get queasy about that kind of thing. I have seen some horrendous deaths, but I'm here to tell you that the physical death, as horrendous as it might be, is nowhere close to a spiritual death in hell. And if you have believed in Christ, you have been spared from the worst possible death. You are the friend hiding behind the building while the sergeant goes out and saves your life. You have been spared from both the pain of that saving act and the pain of a future in hell. Christ died on the cross for us, we have been saved from God's wrath by that. Now turn with me to Luke, please, chapter 17. Luke 17. The real point of my sermon today is is quite uh, subtly placed in the title. How do you say thank you? How do you say thank you for the greatest act of love? Well, the greatest act of love ought to inspire a life of appreciation. Luke 17, verse 11. Now it happened, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the middle of Samaria and Galilee. If you don't know about Samaria, you need to understand that the people who lived there were a, had, a, had a hatred between them and the Jews, and it was a two-way hatred. And it goes way back to some Old Testament history many, many years before, but they were not, they were not friendly. It happened as he went, through, went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a certain village, and there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. Now, if you don't understand leprosy in the time of the Bible, I need to help you with that. Leprosy, as you know, is still a disease today. It is curable by, with the drugs that have been discovered today if it's caught in time. It's always curable, but the results may linger. And leprosy is a terrible thing that causes your, your limbs to, be, uh, to, to, to go away. Your fingers get worn off. and it's, it's actually a nervous disease, as I understand, or a nervous disorder, and you don't feel things, and you hurt yourself, and all kinds of terrible things happen. In the Old Testament, God made a rule about any kind of, uh, uh, of outward deformity, in particular leprosy, and he said, if you get leprosy, here's what you do. You go outside the city, and when, people, when you see people coming, you go, unclean, unclean, so that they won't even get close to you. Now, that must have made a really great social life and a really great work life, all they could do was beg. And they were social outcasts and so on. So as Jesus is entering a village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. They didn't walk up to him because they knew the rules. Verse 13 And they lifted up their voices and said, "'Jesus, Master, have mercy on us.'" So when he saw them, he said, "'Go show yourself to the priest.'" Now, that was the Old Testament rule. If you had a disease like leprosy, and one day you woke up and you're getting better, and after a few days you're better all the way, then you would go to the priest for a post-illness checkup and stamp of approval. And the priest would go, "'Yep, you are now healed.'" It's okay for you to go back into society and so on. So that was the Old Testament prescription. So when when Jesus sees them and they, they say, have mercy, they're obviously asking for healing. He didn't heal them on the spot. He said, go show yourself to the priest. So it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, Returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at Jesus' feet and giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. He wasn't even a a full part of the, uh, you know, God's family, the Jewish people. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten that were cleansed? Where are the other nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Think about it. You've been a leper. You've had a terrible life. This guy comes along and says, go show yourself to the priest. So you think, what have I got to lose? So you're going along and all of a sudden you look around and go, dude, (laughs) I am healed. And the first impulse of nine of those people was to run off into their new life. Now that's understandable. But the impulse of this one man was to come back and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. The question I want to ask you today is How have you responded to Christ since He saved your soul for all of eternity and given you a new life now? He's given you more than He gave the lepers. The lepers got a physical healing, He's given us new life now. What are the ways that we ought to say thank you to Christ? for his sacrifice the first one is worship and we see the example of that right here with this with this man he came back got he he worshiped in the way that he understood and what i mean by that is in that day when there was somebody greater than you and and you wanted to relate to them and show them the respect they deserved, you would get down on your knees or on your face maybe touch their feet You're showing deference to them. That was the way he knew to worship, and that's what he did. God has told us how to worship in many ways in the New Testament. And if I were to summarize those, I would say it's summarized into praise. So the question I would ask is this. Do you tell Christ, thank you for your salvation, On a regular basis. Do you run back to him and say, oh, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me a hope for heaven. Do you praise him for the changes he's made in your life? It's not arrogant or proud to say, oh, God, thank you that I don't do that thing anymore. We all have some things in our past that God has helped us to conquer, and and we know it's God that helped us, and so there's nothing wrong with saying, oh God, thank you for helping me to conquer that. And, And the next breath is, oh God, here's the next thing I need to work on. Please help me with that. But is there praise? Praise for the changes He has made in your life. Do you reflect on Him and praise Him for the blessing of having confidence of heaven? I have never had as much blessing as I've had in this church to see people with the confidence of heaven. And and I hope I can say this just in a real gracious and positive way. When older people are facing death, their faith in Christ comes out if it's there. And it's such a great thing to go to somebody's bedside in the hospital you know i remember a fellow named lloyd he was he was our head usher 70 years old he finally retired from being a heavy truck driver and and not a very long time later had a massive heart attack he's laying in the bed and i went and saw him and he said it's going to be okay one way or the other i said yeah how great is that? This week I, I talked to somebody at church who, who didn't have quite that near of a death experience, but they, they had a situation where they had a test and the, the doctor called up late at night. You know something's not good when the doctor calls late at night. And doctor says, you need to go to the emergency room right away. And they said, no, I'll go tomorrow. If I die, I'm going to go be with the Lord and that's just fine. Wow, and, and this person was telling me this, just rejoicing how great it is to know that you're going to heaven. And they were just, they just had a fresh awareness of, of that hope that God has put within us. When you have those flashes of understanding, do you praise God? Or do you run off into your new life going, oh, my life is great, my life is great. And it is great. But Christ is standing there going, where's the rest of the people? You know, when we come here and sing, Raul leads us in singing, that's what should be fueling. The worship is not the music. The worship is when I think, you are the famous one. You died for me. And I think about that and I go, oh God, thank you for that. And I reflect on my life and I, I see what God has done and, and I'm, I'm singing these words that talk about who God is and I, and I offer that up to God. That's what worship is. That's what praise is. You might only be able to, to make, as Psalm 98, 6 says in the King James, a joyful noise when we sing together. It doesn't matter. I, I'm going to say something I thought I'd never said. It doesn't even matter if you sing. But it matters if your heart is singing. It matters if you are praising God. Because, you know, I've known people over the years, I can't sing. And they wouldn't even try. And I, I just always think, oh, just open your mouth and let it out. But they wouldn't do it. But the question is not, are you singing? The question is, are you, just, are you sitting there just silently reveling in who God is and what he's done for your life? The very first response we ought to have to the saving work of Christ. And as we realize we're not going to hell, we're not going to suffer the wrath of God. The first response ought to be worship. The second response ought to be righteousness. And uh, lots of verses talk about it, but this one really puts it well. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you do not own your own life. That's an important thing to meditate on, isn't it? You know, when God... It, it, scripture uses the imagery of the slave auction about our salvation. And in a slave auction, there would be a, an elevated place in the middle of a group of people, and the slave would stand there naked for inspection, and somebody would come by the slave and take them home. And God uses that same imagery for us. He said, look, you were standing on the slave block of sin with Satan holding the chain saying, you can't have him because he's a sinner. And I came along and took that chain off and delivered him. And now he's mine. Do you know that you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. you know why God says glorify God in your body? This is profound. Wait for it. You can't do anything without your body. It's just a very simple concept. You live in your body. He says, give it to God. Give it to God. Christ paid dearly for your spiritual freedom, for your transformation, for your eternal destiny. Therefore, the proper response is righteous living. In these last 10 years of war against terrorism, there have not only been new heroes, there have been new traitors, people from our own country, uh, native-born people from our own country wanting to help the terrorist. This is a gal who called herself Jihad Jane. Remember her up in uh, Wisconsin or, or somewhere up there in the Midwest? Oh, no, I'm sorry, Philadelphia. She was accused and convicted of recruiting jihadist fighters online and of moving to Europe to try to kill a Swedish artist who had published some art that was insulting to Islam. Colleen LaRose agreed to murder the artist, marry a terrorism suspect, So he would be able to move to Europe and she agreed to be a martyr herself if necessary. And we look at her and we say, don't you realize that the very freedom you have to get on the internet and say anything you want to say was purchased by the people you are now fighting? What is wrong with you? But how much more traitorous is it for a believer in Jesus Christ to conduct his or her life on the side of the enemy of our souls. Because that's what we do when we choose to sin. We say, well, you know, I I know I'm supposed to live for Christ, but really I'm just going to live under the world's domination and under the domination of Satan. Obviously, we never make that choice consciously. We don't say, well, I'm going to be on Satan's side today. But that is what happens when we choose to live sinfully. The third response we ought to have is a response of serving. Serving in the body of Christ. Listen to 1 John. By this we know love or we understand love because he laid down his life for us. And what should we do? We should lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, God isn't saying that you have no responsibility to love unbelievers. That is a different story there. But he is saying when it comes to the body of Christ... You should lay down your life like Christ laid down his life. Taking a meal to someone when they are sick takes effort. Giving to the benevolent fund on communion Sundays so we can help people in the church when they have financial difficulties, that costs you something. Being an Iwana leader or Sunday school teacher Or nursery worker takes time, effort, and heart. Serving the body of Christ is expensive. Even just laying down the pride that you have in whatever you do so that the body of Christ might function more unified, there's a cost to that. But if we appreciate the cost that Christ paid for us, we should be willing to pay the price so that his ministry can go on. The fourth response we ought to have to his sacrifice is that of evangelizing. And I could have used several different words here. I could have used the word witnessing. I could have used the word making disciples. But but here's what I'm thinking about in particular. In particular, I'm thinking about the ministry of us helping people who don't know Christ come to Christ. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. I hope if you go out of here motivated to do some things today, that you are motivated by the love of Christ. I grew up in not only my father's church, but in other churches and camps, and I just felt guilty, guilty, guilty many times. But guilt will not change your life. The love of Christ will change your life. The Apostle Paul said, the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should not live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. We've been brought back together through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. One of the hardest things, I think, for us Christians to really get our minds around and our hearts around is this. The most important thing that goes on when we go out of this building into the world, whether it's to work or to school, or to our neighborhood or club or wherever it is. The most important thing that goes on is us living for God in such a way that we are trying to reconcile others to the Lord. I, you know, the most recent person I, I believe in our church to come to faith in Christ is Unaru. And she, she didn't come because of our ministry, except perhaps as Laurel was part of a ministry. Did you invite her to Bible study? Some other people invited her in. Some other people came out and said, no, just stay there. They took her hand and God's hand and they said, wouldn't you like to get back together? And are you glad they did? Yes. She, I just learned a couple of weeks ago, she has a friend in Mongolia who became a Christian before she came over here. And she took her to church and tried to share with her. You know? That's what the ministry of reconciliation is. We have God in one hand and mankind in the other. Now, I know only God saves people. I completely understand that. But when Mike Hennessy says, can we make some simple gospel tracts? He said, I want to hand those out. I'm online ordering those dudes right now because if I can help Mike and his witness, I want to do it. When we, you know, but our problem is we're just consumed with our own life. We're not wicked. We're not, you know, in the sense of going out saying, I don't care if you go to hell or not. No, we don't live that way. But we go on about our life. We're so busy with our life. If we really appreciate what Christ did for us, we need to do it for others. Letter E, giving. In speaking to the Corinthian church about an offering they were planning to take to help believers who were suffering... God says this, As you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also, this grace of giving. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love. And it's not the love for Paul, it's the love of Christ by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. The basis of giving of our money or, or some other way giving the goods that we own, the basis is an appreciation of what Christ has done for us. So we ought to ask the question, does my giving re- reflect an appreciation of Christ's suffering? Does my giving reflect an appreciation of the blessings I enjoy through my salvation? Does my giving live up to the standard of 2 Corinthians 9-7, which says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. One of the great war movies, in my opinion, what's that worth? In the opinion of a lot of other people, great movies about World War II is this one saving Private Ryan. Tom Hanks was the star of it. And uh, it's a contrived story, not a real story, but based in the facts of World War II, and the story is that there is a young man, who his brothers have all been killed in battle, and the army has decided that young man is going to be pulled out of battle and sent home so that his family is not completely bereft of, of all of their children. And Tom Hanks is the captain of a group of people sent to go find him. And this all happens in the milieu of D-Day and the events after D-Day. And one of the things that makes us a great war movie is it really seems to capture the, the awfulness of war and the uh, the challenges that people have when they're, when they're fighting in a war. Um, they find Private Ryan. That's the name of the movie. They find Private Ryan, and they're gradually moving him back to safety where they can get him back home to America, but they come to a point where it's, it's just the choke point, it's the critical point, and the, the, they are in this terrible fight, and And I think almost everybody in, in uh, Tom Hanks' unit is killed, and at the very end, he's sitting there, dying, he's been shot, and uh, here comes Private Ryan and some other people, and Tom Hanks looks at him and he says... Earn this. Cut to the present day. uh, Private Ryan standing in front of Tom Hanks. Tombstone. Crying his eyes out, trying to say, I've tried to be a good man. I've tried to do what I can and so on. Uh, You know what the great thing about Christianity is? You don't have to earn anything God did for you. You can't earn it. Jesus Christ paid a price that you, you... Your checkbook just isn't that fat. Your good deeds are no good because you're a sinner to begin with. And so our salvation is free and it's given to us. And God doesn't look down from heaven and say, Okay, I've saved you now. Uh, you know, Prove to me I, I, I spent my salvation wisely. Earn it. No. He just looks down from heaven and says... You love me? Sure would like you to show that. Do you appreciate what you have? Boy, that would be a blessing to me if I could see that. I challenge you to, today to be like the one, not like the nine, and to say, I am going to show my appreciation to Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son for me and for us. And I do pray today that if there's somebody who's never grasped how wonderful salvation is and how horrible damnation is, that they would come to faith today. They would not wait another day. And I pray for all of us who do know you, who have believed in Christ, that you would help us to to live a life of appreciation. It's so easy for us to live selfishly. Help us not to be like the nine. Help us to be like the one. I pray in Christ's name, amen.